peace be to you. In treating the commandments, it was said that the first three treat of our duties to God and the last six of our duties to neighbor. In between the two is the fourth commandment, which is honor thy father and thy mother. This commandment has been placed in between the two because it is a bond between both God and neighbor. The justice that we owe our parents is very close to the justice that we owe to God. And it is also related to the justice we owe our neighbor. After God, it was our parents who gave us life. And this fourth commandment, therefore, is the commandment which not only links the two, but which also provides best of all for the future of our civilization. Napoleon was once asked, when does the education of a child begin? And he answered, 20 years before the child is born, in the education of the mother. There is much truth to this, because the parents take the place of God in the home. A child is so much clay in the hands of the parent. And how that child is molded will decide the future of it. When God gave to the parents a child, he made a crown for that child in heaven. Woe be to the parents who do not fulfill the high destiny and vocation of that child. Hence, one of the gravest dangers facing children can be the example of their parents. Delinquency begins at home. Parental delinquency becomes juvenile delinquency. The divine law, therefore, regarding the two, has been clearly put in sacred scripture. There is a double relationship. In the epistle to the Colossians, we read, first of all, of the relationship that children should have to parents. Then later on, the relation that parents have to children. First of all, children in relationship to parents. Children must be obedient to their parents in every way. It is a gracious sign of serving the Lord. In other words, it is accounted as obeying God himself. Now the parents in relationship to children. And you parents must not rouse your children to resentment or you will break their spirits. There must therefore be that gentleness that characterizes the mercy of God toward us. What a beautiful lesson of obedience is given to us in the divine child at Nazareth. 
There is no evidence that he ever gave to Mary and Joseph just the nominal right to command. Rather, the scripture says, he lived there in subjection to them. Imagine, God subject to man. God before whom the angels and principalities and powers tremble is subject to Mary and to Joseph for Mary's sake. Here are the two great miracles of humility and exaltation. The God-man obeying a woman and a woman commanding the God-man. The very fact that he became subject to her endows her with power and that obedience lasted for 30 years. And by this long span of voluntary obedience, he revealed that the fourth commandment is the bedrock of family life. In a larger way, how else could the primal sin of disobedience against God be undone except by the obedience in the flesh of the very God who was once defied? It was Lucifer who said, I will not obey. And Eden caught up that echo. Down the ages its inflection traveled, worming its way into the nook and crevices of every family where there was gathered a father and mother and a child. Here is something to remember. As parents surrender their legitimate authority, and primary responsibility to their children, the state begins to take over. When the parents no longer bring up their children in the love and fear of God, and the children become juvenile delinquents, then the state takes over the home and takes over the children. That is why obedience in the home is the foundation of obedience in the commonwealth. For in each instance, conscience submits to a trustee of God's authority. If it be true that the world has lost its respect for authority, it is only because it has lost it first in the home. And as we said before, as the home loses this authority, then the state begins to become tyrannical. There is a bond established between the home and the state. It was democracy that put man on a pedestal. It was feminism that put woman on a pedestal. But neither democracy nor feminism can live a generation unless a child is first put on a pedestal and such is the significance of Nazareth. How our Lord warned, too, about caring for the child. As he put it, and if anyone hurts the conscience of one of these little ones that believe in me, He had better have been drowned in the depths of the sea 
with a millstone hung about his neck. It is not to be thought, however, that obedience in the home does not include every other kind of obedience. That commandment embraces what is known as the virtue of pietas or piety, and it involves family and neighbor and the state. All authority comes from God. And this commandment obliges us to obey civil authority. Remember when Pilate boasted that he had power to condemn our blessed Lord? Our Lord said that he would not have the power unless it came to him from above. Scripture tells us, every soul must be submissive to its lawful superiors. Authority comes from God only. And all authorities that hold sway are of God's ordinance. It is very beautiful to realize that both St. Paul and St. Peter asked for obedience to civil rulers, even though the civil ruler was Nero, would put them both to death. You will also find that those who love God are always the great patriots. Whenever there begins to be a decline of patriotism in a country, there was always a decline of belief in God. That brings us now to the other commandments, the fifth to the tenth. Our blessed Lord said that we were to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, how do we love ourselves? Well, we love ourselves very much. We enter into a room. We look for the best chair. We do not buy the clothes that will look most unattractive upon us. We choose desserts with considerable discretion and regard to taste. We like praise. In fact, we love ourselves very much. But there are also some things we do not like about ourselves. We do not hate ourselves when we are boorish and loud and insulting to others or make excessive demands upon our neighbor or when we tell untruths that hurt our friends. You see, therefore, we can love ourselves and hate ourselves. What is it that we love in ourselves? Well, we love what is good in ourselves and we hate what is bad in ourselves. Applying that to our neighbor, we love what is good in them and we hate what is sinful in them. So we love the sinner and we hate the sin. We love the neighbor as a spiritual self but we do not necessarily love him as a carnal self. Our blessed Lord, therefore, tied together love of himself and love of neighbor and love of ourselves. There could, therefore, be two great errors. One is to love God without loving our neighbor, 
and the other would be to love our neighbor without loving God. We are often invited to take part in brotherhood weeks, brotherhood causes. There's much talk of the brotherhood of man. All that is very good and true, but how can we be brothers unless we have a common father? To leave the fatherhood of God out of the brotherhood of man is to make us all a race of illegitimate children. But the love of neighbor is not to be standardized solely upon our love of ourselves, but rather upon the way that our Lord has loved us. And that is the way he put it. This is my commandment, that you should love one another as I have loved you. But who is my neighbor? The one who lives next door? Probably, particularly if he be an enemy. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was not the one who lived next door, but the one who was farthest away who turned out to be the neighbor. We can never tell in advance who is our neighbor. That is to say, the neighbor involved in love your neighbor. The neighbor can be a friend, just as our blessed Lord was a friend of Lazarus, and the neighbor could be an enemy. As was the case of the man who was injured on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The neighbor is the one who is in need. As regards interior esteem, interior value. The saints certainly have more of our esteem than do sinners. But on this earth, charity must be guided by the greatness of misery. First spiritual misery, then corporal. If there are two who are in misery and, and both are equally needy, then we can give to the one who is closest to us, either by blood or by friendship. We said that the neighbor can also be the, the enemy. And our blessed Lord gave us this counsel, but I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute and insult you. Love of enemies is actually the touchstone to prove whether or not our love is truly divine. Hence our blessed Lord said that before we bring a gift to him at the altar, we should go and be reconciled to our brother. If there's any conflict between us. And our Lord did not say, if you have something against your brother, he rather said, if your brother has something against you, Now, how can we be related to our neighbor? Well, by mind, by body, and then as regards things. First of all, our mind. We can be bound up with our neighbor in our thoughts, desires, resolutions, 
the way we speak to them, the way we listen to them, then we can be related to our neighbor in body. We may work with them, we may work for them, and then, too, there can be pleasure as regards the communication of body with body. Finally, we can be bounds, money, land, and property, the whole economic order. We are taking these three, mind, body, and mind, because they are, or rather things, because they are the sources when they are disordered and perverted of the three major kinds of sin, pride, which refers to the mind, lust or impurity, which refers to the body, and finally, avarice, which refers to things. Now let us take up our relationship to the neighbor as regards our thoughts, our mind. Here we deal with temptations because they are wholly in the mind. There are three elements to a temptation. Suggestion, delight, consent. You cannot sin in your mind until there is consent. And the consent comes from the will, not from the feeling. First, the suggestion may come from the eye, the ear, the memory, the imagination. A suggestion to sin, just as Eve was tempted by the word of Satan. Then secondly, there can be delight. And that can even be physical. We can feel the repercussion of the thought in our body. It does not make any difference how long that feeling may endure. There is no sin until there is consent. I will to consent to that thought, or I will not to consent to it. We are not, therefore, to think that we are bad simply because we are tempted. We are tempted because we're human. It is only the consent which is wrong. Now our relationship as regards the mind to our neighbor obliges us, therefore, to speak the truth. And why the truth? Well, simply because no other moral virtue can grow up without it. And furthermore, because in the sacrament of confirmation... We receive the spirit of truth. And also because the membership in the mystical body becomes more intimate, as St. Paul tells us, when we are bound together by truth. And the reason we are asked, therefore, to be truthful is simply because the whole incarnation is truth. Remember that the word became flesh. In other words, the inner word or the thought of God became flesh, became externalized. And so too, as the Son is the image of the Father, so what I say externally, or with my lips, must be the image of what is in my mind internally. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Therefore, all 
sins against truth are forbidden like lying and boasting, defaming character, injuring another's good name, rash judgment, falsely accusing others, denying our faith even under persecution, hypocrisy, and then even resolving to do something that is evil even when we are unable to carry it out. One can commit murder by thinking about it, resolving to do it, even though the thought never passes into act. That is why the commandments say, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Our blessed Lord said, Any man looking after a woman and lusting after her hath already committed adultery with her in his own heart. See, the church does not wait, or rather our blessed Lord does not wait until a thought passes out into act. He's not interested just in hygiene. He keeps clean all of the motivations of action. All of the little rivers that run into the ocean are kept clean, and the ocean itself will be kept clean. Next we come to the body, our body, and also the bodies of others. Now the reason the body is deserving of respect is because, well, in the natural order, it is bound with the soul to constitute a person, and in the supernatural order, it becomes a temple of God because we are in the state of grace. So sacred scripture says to us, I appeal to you by God's mercies to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to God and worthy of his acceptance. I believe that we already said before, very often people who go in for excessive luxury of body are very often naked on the inside. The more the soul is clothed with virtue, the less need there is of external display. So we have to take care of our body, and we do so not just for biological reasons, but we do it in order to better maintain our spiritual moral life. Now, this does not mean that sickness is incompatible with holiness. It is not. Sometimes sickness diminishes temptation, unites us with the passion of our Lord, and assures us also of the promise of glory if we suffer in his name. We have to remember that every sin in the mind can be also an assault, not only on the mind, but also on the body. Therefore, as regards our own body, there will no, be no such thing as taking our own life, because that belongs to God. For a woman, there will be no such thing as abortion. There will be no taking the lives of uncurable persons. There will be no evil thoughts or desires against the neighbor and be no solitary sins, no drunkenness, and all the other sins against the body which you will find mentioned in 
the prayer book. And as there will be no sins against our own body, so none against the body of the neighbor, like murder, abortion, adultery, and the prevention of the fruit of love. Finally, we are related to our neighbor by things. Private property is the external guarantee of human freedom. The right to property is personal, but the use of property is social. Hence, we are bound to our neighbor in charity to give alms. The superfluities of the rich are the necessities of the poor. Our blessed Lord said, I was sick and you visited me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. There will therefore be also as regards things, great charity, particularly to the missions of the church in pagan lands. As the Holy Father said, this is the charity that surpasses all other charities as heaven, earth, and eternity time. All sins, therefore, as regarded, regarding things will be avoided. There will be no stealing. If there be stealing, there will be the restitution of what was stolen. If we do not know the person from whom something was stolen, then we will give a similar amount of charity. We will repair for unjust damage. We will give a full work for a day's pay. There will be the payment by employers of a living wage. There will be no cheating, no cutting of corners, as sacred scripture says, thou shalt not carry two different weights in thy wallet, one heavy, one light. A just weight and a true thou shalt always use. All such knavery is hateful to the Lord thy God. He is the enemy of wrongdoing. And thus, 